here we have it. Here we have it. Happy, happy reopening, Streeter. Happy reopening. We're, we're, this is our. This is one of hopefully many podcasts to come uh, in the post-COVID world. Because up up till now, we <laughs> I think all our podcasts have been recorded more or less in lockdown. You know. Yeah, I mean, post-COVID America. Let's be real. I mean, you know. sorry. Po- yeah, the the in our post-COVID world, which is to say, post-COVID America. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. So um. So part of reopening and um the restart of of society is concerts are becoming a thing again and one of the orchestras i play in we're still we're still a few months out um there things are just starting to get organized and stuff but uh the program they're kind of flirting with and playing around with is an idea which i love and i think more concerts or more orchestras should do especially ones that are a little a bit less not like your top tier San Francisco Symphony, Chicago Symphony groups, but kind of the smaller, more regional orchestras is, um, yeah, doing pops concert sort of stuff. Hmm. And the plan is at least that's what we're kind of doing, and I could not be more pumped. So we're we might do some John Williams music, we might do some some like epic classical music that. Uh, like you know Wagner overtures and stuff right that are famous you know like pop culture or big Italian Verdi overtures yeah. kind of like you know rock and roll classical music stuff that that the I like that rock and roll classical music <laughs> yeah like the Verdi Requiem or um, Rossini overtures right like the Barber yeah Sino yeah or, or even some sometimes like Mozart overtures like the Marriage of Figaro yeah really, yeah really popular stuff right right um um yeah, and some of the stuff like, you know, the bow tie, you know, tying highbrow crowd might look the other way at, I think is awesome. I, I, I just think it's awesome. It's cool. Orchestras need to do the sort of thing. Kind of a follow-up on what we were talking about in an episode or two about, you know, orchestras having a tough time financially. Do the artistic stuff. Do the stuff you want to do. But first rule, first rule of sales, make something that people want. <laughs> and... <laughs> There's a reason even the top tier orchestras do Jurassic Park and and Star Wars concerts and uh, and Olympics music also by John Williams and things, and so yeah. that's the plan from one of the orchestras I'm in. And again, one of the reasons I picked up the trumpet when I was ten of all the instruments I could choose from was yeah to play the Indiana Jones theme right. Was, <laughs> that was just that's just like so ingrained in my my childhood and my musical um, my initial mu- initial musical motivation. So. That's the plan, at least. I'm excited we're doing it. And, yeah. It's interesting that uh, you say that you draw the distinction between kind of more regional orchestras and then sort of the big, the real big name, you know, first and second tier orchestras, because I think that's an important distinction in terms of, like, where programming goes, because um, someone like the, the New York Philharmonic doesn't really need to earn the trust of its audience. Right. Um, but, you know, a regional orchestra has to work really hard to to sort of gain that kind of trust from its from its um you know local listenership um and after you know almost a year and a quarter right like almost a year and a half honestly but by the time because now like now that we know that things are going to reopen people have started putting plans in place but these concerts are going to start taking place you know months from now so Mm. you know yeah, after almost a year and a half of nothing you know you you really do need to sort of work up um a rapport with your with your audience again, if you're if you're um, like a regional 
um, orchestra. Yeah. So I, th- I think I think that's a good point. Um, yeah. Any any pieces specifically that that you're excited for? I'm not gonna lie, the John Williams stuff because that's stuff I've yeah. never actually performed and I've always wanted to since I was a kid, right? Playing the trumpet. Yeah. And so, yeah. I found that at least for the I'm sure it's the same with trumpet, but on the flute parts, John John Williams is always surprisingly difficult. Um, yeah. It's just interesting. It's interesting. Just, yeah. It just, it's, um, you always just think, you know, and, and this is true. Most pop stuff is pretty easy, but John, John Williams, you know, you, one rarely has an easy time playing it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, yeah. John Williams too is one of those composers where uh, man, I think he, he doesn't get enough acclaim for how great he is, which sounds ridiculous because he's one of the most not only financially successful composers of the modern era, right? There's that part of it. Well, there, there's financial and success. There's like success and financial recognition and stuff like that. But then there's also artistic recognition. And I, I think right. a case could be made that John Williams is, is lacking in the, form, in the latter of those. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so you even take his like first big hit of a score, which was Jaws. Also Spielberg's first big film, right? I mean, he terrorized the whole world with just two notes. And some people will not criticize him. We'll kind of say, okay, like, well, he's good at doing like fanfarish, um, brassy, heavy, loud, epic film scores. No, look at his score for Catch Me If You Can, right? That's a avant-garde French jazz score. I would kind of paint it as, you know, with vibraphone and soprano saxophone, right? It's like the main, two of the main instruments and in a lot of it. Uh, yeah, and it's. Yeah. So um, complex and interesting and and yeah. And it's one of those where I will say if it was written by, say, Philip Glass or someone and a composer I adore, if it was written by Philip Glass, let's say, I think the classical world would have like really openly embraced it and stuff and would have rushed to embrace it. I mean, you know, um, but because it was for a film and it was by John Williams, it it didn't quite get that acclaim from again quote the artistic community um right which right. is sad but of course i really don't think john williams cares he's just trying to you know he is one of those people i do think where if you ask him what his favorite score is he'll say the next one you know yeah <laughs> um and sure. he's what what he's like 89 now and still like some of these terrible star wars movies that that have come out um the scores are incredible and really strategic and like really the art of the film score he just um he approaches with all the musicality he he has in him and and yeah so dare i say he doesn't get enough acclaim (laughs) yeah and and they're they're the only redeeming factors for those films too for for the for the recent you know crappy star wars movies i mean yeah they've got essentially nothing going for them but but the score it's pretty obvious when you watch these new Star Wars films. I'm not the one who's coming up with this analysis. This has been said before, but it's not too hard to pick up on. Um, with these recent, you know, the last five years of the Disney Star Wars era, it's quite it's quite clear that that 
Disney has no real plan for Star Wars. They're making each film one at a time, judging the audience reaction and how the films are received and making the next film in response to that to try to make it just more successful. So there's no real overarching plan. So John Williams, though, again, John Williams is better than these movies because what he has done, these themes for new characters and stuff and new new love interests and new this and that and these new films, John Williams has, he, he wrote melodies that were very flexible and could be morphed in a variety of ways so that no matter where the plot ends up going, he has, a, he has at least a plausible musical answer for it. Unlike the original trilogy or the Indiana Jones trilogies and stuff where there's kind of an overarching narrative, right? Where, um, uh, where John Williams knew that and could work with it. Um, these new ones, though, yeah, he's, he's uh, yeah, it's just kind of hilarious how innovative he he's just showing he is and again he's you know in his late 80s and 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 stuff so (laughs) well he's joining a long line of he's joining a long line of artists who play within the rules of the of the time that's given to them right like the 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 religion or the corporation or whatever that's that is their their patron you know there's Mm -hmm. you know anyone from from someone like michelangelo to um to bach you know, they, they had to they had to make some work, um, you know, within within a sort of given constraint of, of their of their patrons. Back then, it was yeah. it was their um, religious patrons. Um, now, you know, maybe it could be said that in the, the religion of modern America is is um, is corporate culture is. You know, yeah. So, so in that sense, you know, Disney has its own sort of um, almost liturgical um you know constraints that are given to someone like john williams and then he has to sort of play within these within these things and um it's kind of it's kind of fun sort of looking looking at stuff like that you get a similar sense as when you look at you know when you look at some bach cantatas and you think uh oh he he did it like that because um you know if if he if he was more overtly chromatic here um you know his church like the, the the church would have been mad at him so so he sort of disguised it in this way or he hid it in the counterpoint here so that right uh, you know right. The, the, you always get these things where where people you know the, the history of art is is the history of people who um try to try to be subversive within the within the constraints of of um of what their patrons are giving to them right yeah so in no that sense you, you can you can view disney as kind of john williams's patron and uh and he's just sort of (laughs) he's trying to do the best he can um you know within that constraint and it's interesting yeah it is and and john williams too if i could just point listeners to a thing or two it's we all remember the big um uh, well okay well first before we get into that one of the things i realized recently embarrassingly recently which i think is just brilliant is um uh for the for the very first Star Wars movie that came out in what was it like seventy six or seventy seven, the twentieth the twentieth century Fox fanfare theme is is what is the first music you hear. And it is in the key of B flat major. It's key. It ends in a beautiful you know B flat major chord. Then there's a silence. Then it's like, you know, a long time ago in the galaxy far far away. And the first thing you hear from the music of Star Wars is a giant B flat major chord. (laughs) 
yeah, it just seamlessly goes into one. I never noticed that until months ago, maybe that he wrote the Star Wars, the whole Star Wars theme is in the key of B flat, just so it sets up nicely with the 20th Century Fox fanfare theme. That's, that's pretty great. I never thought about that until <laughs> the, until the moment you started explaining it. I realized I realized exactly where yeah. you were going with it. I was I heard it in my head, and I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Brilliant. Yeah. That, and it's also just kind of hilarious too. That's just <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, yeah, with, if I could just say another thing here, it's, we remember John Williams for a lot of the big fanfare, big epic melodies, Star Wars, Indiana Jones. Um, yeah, right. And so those are all well and great, but usually he follows up these melodies with, or even just on their own, he'll write some of the most beautiful, like lyrical melodies lush string and woodwind melodies that he never gets enough acclaim for like in indiana jones you have the raiders march the famous trumpet fanfare we all know followed up after that is i believe it's called marion's theme she's the mm-hmm. the girl in the film and it's that beautiful um you know string melody it's just so lush and and gorgeous that's completely different than the fanfare i always felt john williams never got enough love for that sort of stuff so yeah yeah and if, if, if anyone's um, wanting to hear more on John Williams and, and sort of how he grew out of the, the um, you know, people like uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, um, you know, coming before him, they, they, can, they can go to uh, episode two, is it? I think it's our second uh, one where we talked about yeah, film music. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. does film music count? Um, yeah, yeah. We, we, we oh. talk pretty extensively about, about, um, about Korngold and, and um, Boxman. Some, yeah, some sort of you Steiner, know, people who too, bridged, yeah. yeah, and some people who bridged the the gap between classical co- composing and and, fil- and film composing, which I think John yeah. Williams is, is squarely sort of in that tradition. So, anyways, that's one of the things I'm looking forward to. My first, my last concert before the pandemic, I think it was the one where I played Sibelius Symphony Two, which was it's an awesome work, beautiful trumpet part and things. But I had no idea it'd be the last concert I play for a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, so. So, uh, um, anyways, there, there's an orchestra here that um, I was in, I was invited to play with for the summer, but um, since 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 I'm hopping town soon, I'm not um, I'm not going to be playing with them for this cycle. But um, I think they're doing a similar thing of kind of um, like rock, not rock, but like the really big sort of popular classical pieces. You know, not exactly right. pops. Like I forget exactly what was on the program, but. I know one of the pieces was um, Bartok's Romanian Dances. I, I do wonder, like, I, I never really paused to consider it, but I, I, I do kind of want to trawl the programs of, um, yeah. of orchestras that are coming back. I, I suspect there's going to be a lot of this kind of stuff. You no, know, and some of it's good music and great music. And it's a shame it took a pandemic for orchestras to consider <laughs> performing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should we get into our regularly scheduled programming for today? Shreeder, you had an, an idea. You had an idea for this episode. Do you care to introduce it? Yeah. So, so um, we we both have 
record players now. This is a relatively recent addition. Pandemic purchase. Yeah, pa- yeah it's, it's been a pandemic purchase, and um, I can safely say it's been one of the, one of the coolest additions to my life. I, I, I love it. Um, and we joked a while ago, pretty soon after we got our record players, we, we joked that we should start a whole new podcast um, <laughs> called Vinyl Revival, uh, yeah. where, where we just talk about the vinyls that we have. Um, yeah. Because, you know, we're always coming up with new podcast ideas, it seems. But um, I had the idea of, of doing a sort of, not, not a test episode, but a kind of, um, a sort of mini episode of, of Vinyl Revival. Um, yeah. where, we would, um, where we would pick a record that we have and, and sort of talk about all of the aspects of it, not just the music, but the, the artwork and the design, um, the sort of experience, like what makes, what makes it worth being a record as opposed to something that you just click on Spotify mm-hmm. and listen to, et cetera. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Did, did, did you want to say a few more words? Yeah, no, I, I forget what episode it was. It was one of the, um, one of the ones from, it was a little while ago where we talked a lot about um, vinyl and records and why record, I mean, we'll link to the episode in the show notes if you're curious to check it out. Yeah. But it's one where we talked about why vinyl is becoming more and more popular. And we, we discussed an article and we discussed an article that I read somewhere too that um, was linking the rise in vinyl to the rise in streaming, which was super mm-hmm. interesting, I thought. And and makes sense for a whole lot of reasons and stuff that we got really deep into there. So and this was, and, uh, um, I just pulled it up. It's episode okay. 10. It's, it's episode 10 called Side Notes. So, oh, what's that long ago, really? Yeah. Damn, yeah. yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. we, we talked about, um, about the, it was the one where we talked about the Steinway Spirio. Ah, so, so yeah. So, we also talked yeah. about streaming and vinyl and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. if, if you guys are curious, you can go back to, to, to episode 10. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. And like, um, yeah, no, I mean, there's, so we talked about it. Yeah. A whole lot of reasons like why vinyl is awesome. Do, do yeah, you want to, do you want to give a quick recap just for sure? For, for sure. Yeah. So there's a few things I, so when we're listening to albums on vinyl, first of all, I think it may be an obvious point, but there's something to be said for listening to something in the medium that it was conceived in, right? Like if you have the Beatles Sgt. Pepper, right? Or something like that, that was made to be an album. The Beatles intended people to listen to that on vinyl. Uh, They had an A side, a B side. The Beatles thought very hard about what they put as track one on the A side, track one on the B side, where, you know, the whole progression, right? Because again, a vinyl, when you listen to vinyl, it is an experience, right? You can't really easily skip tracks or so. You can, but, Generally, you listen to it from front to back, right? And now in the era of streaming, that's kind of like a obsolete concept for the most part. Artists in the classical world too, right? Just put together a CD or an album on Spotify and it's just, you know, boom, here's like the 10 things I recorded at this recording session, right? There's not much like thought given to. Yeah, right. There's not much thought given to the order because they know it's probably how, that's probably not how listeners are going to listen to it. But final it's very much an experience and a progression from start to finish. And I love, I love, um, vinyl as like an art, like the album art of vinyl is like really cool in the liner notes. And again, the artists have in publishers, um, have control over that and had to make decisions about what they include, what they don't include and stuff. And that is really interesting to think about and also just fun to read. There's something 
something where I love about I love how a record is truly a physical embodiment of music right it's not stored in a digital format like on a cd or obviously on your computer right it's actual the physical bumps the physical grooves that make the music so it's almost like in the world this is actually a physical tactile object that that is a that um corresponds to a piece of music yeah so i, I and i remember that. we were talking yeah. about this guy um Arthur Lintgen, I think is his name, who, who, could, who could tell what symphony was on a record just by looking at the grooves, Yeah, um, which, so, is, so that, which is really cool. And that, that goes to what you're saying about, about it being a sort of physical representation of the music, you know? Yeah, but, yeah. But and, sorry, go on. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, and there's something I just also love and respect about how, how brilliant um, the record was as like an invention. I mean, it changed the course of human history the record way more than the CD did. Right. Or anything. This really shaped the way our culture developed when records are being invented and popular and popularized in the early twenties. Right. It's no coincidence. That's when jazz really started to become a popular mainstream art form, not kind of a niche wave. Right. And it's kind of like the, it's kind of like the moon landing in that sense. Right. Um, hmm. Is it, is it, you know, obviously there've been more, more technological advancements that are sort of more impressive, quote unquote, since yeah. then. But in terms of the sort of upgrade, the one-time upgrade to like human endeavor, um, yeah. you know, the moon landing, I think, has yet to be topped. And it's, it's that. Is, is streaming technically more like complicated and, and interesting technologically than a record? True. But in terms of how much we jumped from like, you know, nothing to record, um, right. You know, that jump is way more than from record to streaming. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, it's funny you talk about the moon landing, it's, right? It's like, why were there so many historical events in the 60s? I think part of it is because for the first time in history, we all had TVs in our living rooms. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> that's really, so, that, that's a good way. That's, that's nice. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so, and also... Like what a successful um, medium, what a successful invention the record was. Because think about how long records lasted. From like 1920 to the late 80s, it was the medium to listen to music. I mean, I mean, other than radio, but that was kind of different. But to like buy music, right? It, it, it lasted, what is that, 70 years or so? I mean... Not including the know, comeback that it's making. Yeah, so not even including that, but... Yeah, record players maybe improved and got fancier, but the record itself is like how, how the record works. I mean, name one invention that lasts 70 years. Like CDs lasted 15 or 20 years. You know, streaming is just about 10 years old, right? I mean, yeah. VHS tapes lasted 15 years-ish, right? DVDs only lasted 10 years, and now people don't really buy DVDs anymore. So for something yeah. that last 70 years and remain pretty much unchanged for most of that is, is pretty unprecedented. Yeah, I think the unchanged is a, is an important part of that because um, I think it's kind of like a book in that in that way, you know. Um, a, a book not only is it long lasting, but a a book is always going to be kind of a book, you know. There's not too much, as opposed to something like radio, which is is very long lasting, but um, the the nature of radio has changed so much, you know. Now, right, now radio right. is pretty much just a podcast. Yeah, and Infowars. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, like the the form of the record remaining, um, you know, yeah. like the record. 
exactly that's pretty exactly. that's pretty rare you know in in the, in the world of media of course you know there are other technologies in, in other parts of the in other like parts of our technological landscape that are that are robust but in terms of media i think the the sort of mm-hmm. longevity of the record um is is pretty fairly unique right i mean if you go to any home that was built in like the 40s 50s 60s 70s it's there's a record area in home designs right like the, the record shelf the record cabinet all that right so it's it was just so universal in everyone's lives no matter what kind of music you listen to you use a record so yeah um and you kind of touched on yeah, this but i would like to add one more one more reason why why i think the the record player is so fun um which is that it i, I think what streaming has done is it's made music into into a kind of wall, wallpaper for people's lives you know they just it's just something you have in the back um and I think a, a record player is a good way to sort of get your head out of that out of that zone. Mm. There, there is a utility in having easy access to music as wallpaper that's that streaming yeah, offers, but but of there's course. also something to be said for um, for actually enjoying the music as as its own experience. Yeah, and that's really hard to do uh, if you're just clicking if you're just you know pressing a few clicks on your computer and then going back to doing something else on your computer. Um, yeah. y- your brain doesn't have the same kind of modal shift, whereas with a record player, you really can kind of, um, you know, it's more deliberate. You have to go to the thing, you have to pick a record yeah. out, you have to put it in, and then you have to flip the side every, you know, 20 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, you're really listening to a record as opposed to just, you know, putting on a playlist on Spotify. Um, yeah, it's so, very, it's, it's, it's really intentional, right? Yeah. It's really intentional, yeah. 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 And, and I, would, I think that that's, that's maybe one of my favorite reasons for, for listening to records. It's you know, it really puts the the experience of listening to music um, yeah. back front and center. Yeah, it's more of um, we talked about this before, perhaps, but yeah, it's it's more of a performance. It's more of an experience, and less of it's more something you listen to, and less something you just hear. Right? Yeah, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah, um, and and also shopping for records is so much fun. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Used record stores are great. It's fun. Um, I always thought it was a great date idea to go to a record store. Like you really learn a lot about someone yeah. by shopping around for records and things. And oh, what's this? What's this? You know, bin over here full of. And you go through stuff. You discover things. You learn about things. Yeah. And it's just it's so much more fun than it's it's so much more fun than finding something on streaming because first of all there are a lot of records that are just hidden gems that you can't find online. You know, they're just, mm-hmm. they're random records of live concerts. Um, yeah, yeah. I've said this before, but I, I, we found a record in our, in the used record store that's down the street um, where um, uh, the, it's, it's just a bunch of students from Curtis who are playing songs oh. by, by Ned Roram. And on piano is, uh, is the composer Pulak. Oh. Um, he, he was just playing with a bunch of students. You know, this is not anything that shows up if you search for Poolank on Spotify. And this is right. not a recording that exists on YouTube as far as I know. I think this was just a concert that was recorded, happened to be put on a record, and then sort of, I don't know how many copies were printed, and then it just disappeared and now it's there. Right. And, you know, and you just find it. And, um, right, and right. That's, that's brilliant. And then also for, for sort of classic records, um, it's so fun to, to actually see like the artwork, you know, blown up and you can see the liner notes and there's just more, more that you can sort of more tangible things that you can check out and, and learn from than, than if you just uh, go to a, a page on Spotify. Yeah. So love it. Love it. Yeah. No, I second everything, everything you just said. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's also just fun. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, yeah, it is just fun. Yeah. All right. So so you're gonna go first. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna um, present your wares here. Sure, sure. And so yeah, just to like establish the ground rules, which there really aren't any. But yeah, it can just be any <laughs> album ever, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I, that should be clear. Yeah, this is this did not have to be classical music. Awesome, awesome. We might approach it from a classical lens, uh, but or not. I don't know. Um, we'll see. Yeah, no. So okay, so the album. Yeah, I did think a little hard about this. There's like a few I was really struggling uh, with, but I picked one that I thought would be interesting to talk about, and um, one I don't think we've talked about uh, yet. So uh, I have it right down here. This may look familiar. Hell yes. It's not the one you picked, right? No, it's not the one that I picked. Okay. And but okay. it's 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 one that I was uh, I wanted to pick, and I thought I think Chris might pick this, so I'm just gonna go with something <laughs> else because I really wanted to talk about it. So here we are. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. No, I thought it'd be a good one to talk about. So so yeah. So for everyone that can't see us, which is everyone, <laughs> I am holding up Sinatra at the Sands with Count Basie and the orchestra arranged and conducted by Quincy Jones. So this is, I think, just one of the definitive Frank Sinatra. Um, I mean, he, he's had a lot of definitive, d- definitive albums, to be fair. But this one, I think, is a really special album of his. And it was recorded at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, which is nowadays that stood where now the Venetian Hotel stands. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So even if you go into the Venetian... Um, there, there's a big theater in there that they have concerts, you know, like, I forget, Elton John performs there a lot or something. But, yeah, they have this big, giant theater. But right kind of outside the theater, right at the entrance, there's this little, it's small but really profound. It's this little shrine, almost, that shows pictures of when it was the Sands Hotel and when the Rat Pack performed there and when Tony Bennett performed there <laughs> and, of course, Frank Sinatra and, and every, everyone, like, all the big stars in Vegas all performed at a bunch of, you know, a few standard places. And one of them was, I forget the name of the auditorium, but it was at the Sands, the Sands Hotel. And this is a special album, I think. It is, it came out in, in a, it was recorded and released, I believe, in 1966. And this is Frank Sinatra just being Frank Sinatra. I think this is, this is, uh, when... He so Frank Sinatra was a guy who his career spanned decades and decades. He he started pretty young. He was fairly successful at a young age and kept getting more successful and stuff. So his life and career spanned different eras, different uh, times and stuff. And it's funny when you go look at you know young Frank Sinatra in Hollywood. It's just funny to think oh that's actually Frank Sinatra. You know he's like he looks like like a kid basically, but. When you think of Frank Sinatra, you think of this Frank Sinatra. Yeah. So, and this is this was recorded. This is the same year I believe he turned. He he had recently turned fifty when he recorded this concert, and it is with the Count Basie Orchestra with Count Basie on piano, obviously. And boy, are they a well-oiled machine as a big band. They just swing and are so in the pocket together, and. Frank just Frank can just like slot right into that sound so so beautifully and things and it's a it's a really special concert and it's it was recorded live which I don't always love live recordings I think 
I think it kind of misses the point most of the time. I think the you know they lose a bit in that. Like live worked well when it was live, and recording should be made in the studio where you can take those art- artistic risks. Maybe you can't take in front of a live audience, and for a bunch of other reasons, I think live concerts usually don't turn out too well on recording. But this is a huge exception because this, and maybe that's part of who Frank Sinatra was. He was a showman. He was, um, and this is a dinner and a show concert, right? Where it's everyone's. <laughs> at a table eating eating dinner and drinking martinis and wine and stuff and the performance is going on on stage i i wish those would come back for the record i think those that's like <laughs> such a cool idea um you should bring them and, back right i mean well that was like the norm back in the 50s and 60s it was you booked a show to see frank sinatra and it came with dinner that's that's how, yeah. how it was um and you know you could smoke indoors and no, but um, uh, well you could but so it's fun like um in some of the um when he's talking in the banter in between in between numbers and charts and he's cracking jokes and things you can hear people's forks clinging on plates and stuff and and it's um it's really like cool it kind of puts you in that and it's it's one of those records and I guess performances that feels like it can sort of transport you to to that time and. And so, so that part is lovely. Everyone sounds um, amazing. A young Quincy Jones did the big band arrangements. For some of these songs that became big after this, like Fly Me to the Moon, which he sings on here, at the time of this recording was a very new song most people did not know. Hmm. Now it's a standard requested at every piano bar ever, right? Now this man here, is going to take me by the hand and he's going to lead me down the right path to righteousness and all that other mother jazz in the right tempo fly me to the moon let me swing among those stars let me see what spring is like on a jupiter and mars this when he starts to sing it yeah not many people have heard that song before and a lot of these Quincy Jones arrangements of these charts kind of became standard and, and such and um, as far as the actual record it goes um, as far as the actual record I'm holding goes it's uh, two records so four sides so it's pretty active on the listener side there's a lot of flipping and changing you have to if you want to listen to all of it but it's maybe 70 minutes long or so and I love a lot of the liner notes. It's just it shows Frank getting ready backstage and stuff, and talks about his ritual where he, um, you know, he would sit in a steamer, you know, in, in, in a sauna, like the afternoon of a of a performance, get his voice, his sizzling baritone voice, all nice and moist. The liner notes are mostly by someone who appears to be a journalist, Stan Corin, <laughs> and just kind of talking about his experience when he was there at at this concert. And just how seeing Frank Sinatra was really more than just about going to listen to the music. It was about being in the presence of Frank. And there's a lot of the big standards on this one. There's Come Fly With Me, I've Got a Crush on You, Got You Under My Skin, Fly Me to the Moon. You know, a lot of the, a it, lot of those charts. And, and it has, and it has one so. of my favorite songs, which I, which I don't know how standard it is. But um, is, it, is, it, is it called One, one For My Baby and, and One More For The Road? Yeah. yeah, so I was about to ask, I was about to bring that one up, actually. Oh, so, yeah? Yeah, so what's great about that one on this? So it's the last track on side one of disc one. And what's cool about that is 
he, um, in the introduction, when he's introducing that chart, uh, Count Basie is actually slipping backstage. He's getting off the stage because he um, Frank introduces his pianist, Bill Miller, who was Frank Sinatra's pianist for decades. I mean, what a gig, right? I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's quite like the job title, being Frank Sinatra's pianist. Um, and so what's wonderful about that song, one of the things I, I, I just love so much and... It, it's just the intimacy and the rawness of just voice and piano. Don't get me wrong. I love voice and jazz trio, voice and big band, voice and orchestra. That's all great. But sometimes I just love the, yeah, just the the rawness, I guess, of just voice and piano. And so that, that track on here, it's just Frank, Frank up there with the spotlight shining down on him, leaning up against the piano. It's quarter to three There's no one in the place Except you and me Set em up, Joe I got a little story I think you should know and it works as a song because it's it's a it's such an introverted song, um, but no, it, yeah. it is it is really a song that that's you know it's as the as the bar is sort of emptying and uh, and you know everyone's petering out you know it's just it's all that's left is is you and the piano. So. Yeah, and I think when he's introducing that song, he even asks you, he asks the audience, I want you to take the role as a bartender with a rag cleaning up you know the, the, yeah. <laughs> the counter and. And uh, yeah, no, it's like quarter to three. I think it's, so. It's like yes, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I think that's part of the the lyrics. That's lying in there. Yeah, yeah. So, or as, as he yeah. says in the in the banter, um, what what does he say? The the broad flew the coop and she took all the dough or something. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So, um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on this album because this is an album. One of the reasons I picked this for kind of our introductory episode of the series if this, if this keeps happening is yeah i know this is an album that you have and yeah you know so and and the reason you know that is because uh you you sent it to me you, you sent me a copy when <laughs> yeah. when uh, when i when i got the record player it was it was near it was near then right like we were mm-hmm. just getting, yeah 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 we were just getting it and, and you you sent over a copy and that was a great surprise because um, i I'd never heard this album before um, a lot of people haven't like yeah. most have not um yeah and um, like I think I said before, that um, that was on my short list for for albums to pick too, because I think that that's one of the, that's one of my favorite records um, that that I have. Um, it just it it embodies so much so many of the things that we that we talked about before about um, why why a record is is so fun. I mean, his so you you said you don't love live recordings, and I don't either. But I actually think. Um, if if the live performance is, is sort of charismatic enough and the performer is charismatic enough, it really works, mm-hmm. especially with the record, because I think a record does more in terms of um, um, recreating the sort of atmosphere of an event better than mm-hmm. better than um, like a streaming does, you know. So it it is really fun to to sort of you know have a little salonish evening yourself. Yeah. You know? With yeah, with the little yeah. bar cart, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. You make a drink. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, it's after dinner, and you you you're you know you have a little 
cocktail or some wine or something, and then you put on the Sinatra at the Sands. Um, you know, it really adds something to the to the experience. And his banter is so great. He's he's really electrifying the crowd. You know, not just like the songs are wonderful and and the the music is is great, but also in between all the all the songs, he just you know he has a few riffs that he's he's going on with the audience, and and they're they're hilarious. Uh, yeah. They they crack me up every time. He was he was part comedian really, um, right. and then he even has one extended monologue uh, about about his turning fifty, and it's it's really funny. Um, but um, I forget is this the first thing that he says when he walks on stage, and he says, um, uh, "How did all these people get into my room?" Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The the way the album starts is one of my favorite like beginnings to an album ever. It's just. The guy on the mic is basically introducing, you know, the band, Duke Ellington, Quincy Jones, and Frank Sinatra, right? Just yeah. <laughs> way it is, and he walks out, and they just kick it off with "Come Fly with Me." The Sands is proud to present a wonderful new show, "A Man and His Music." The music of Count Basie and his great band. The man is Frank Sinatra. How did all these people get in my room? Come fly with me, we'll fly, we'll fly away If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay So, no, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful record and um, it's certainly one of the ones that, that we've listened to the most around here, I think. And um, it, it is such a... It, it's everything that a record should be like it is I, I think it's it's one of those things that it is it would be so inferior to listen to it on spotify even mm, though the music yeah. is, is so great and stuff it just is not the same thing as as like a you know a late evening um right put, putting on the record for sinatra at the sands and um even something with the sound like the is the little bit of record scratch just adds adds some, yeah. adds some grit to this thing um and you can feel him sort of going through the paces of the performance as you exactly as you sort of flip the flip the record and then you you put in the second uh, record and then you flip that you can you feel the um, like his his own um, sometimes you can hear his voice straining but it's it's in a good yeah. way right right or like it adds something I think to the to the whole experience um, yeah. you, you just feel him also going through his performance and um, and. He kind of he, he has this way that he paces the both the beginning of the show and the end of the show um, mm-hmm. that I think is just brilliant. I mean he's such a he's such a showman and he could control the crowd in such a um, yeah in such a co- competent b- brilliant way. Um, it really le- lends itself to to um, a record and and again you know not just sort of oh we're gonna put on some Sinatra and have it going going on in the back while we don't think about yeah. it but something that is. A deliberate experience so exactly yeah. yeah and also worth noting I mean how much of a marvel of 
sound engineering this record was. Mm. Like for a live record recorded in, in the middle 60s, in, recorded in, in the mid 60s, this is a marvel of recording technology. It's good. Live point. performances, I mean, even nowadays, like don't sound that great often. That's one of the reasons, one of a handful of reasons I usually don't like live recordings is the sound quality just isn't that good. Yeah. And because it's hard, it's hard to actually do that well in a live concert. Uh, mic placement and mixing and mastering those audio tracks is really hard to do for um, a live concert. Especially and this combination. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's recorded at, at a dinner club, essentially. I mean, it's a very big dinner club, but that's kind of what it is. So, um, I mean, but yeah, it just sounds, um, the yeah, the actual engineering. I think, um, are the sound engineers credited in here? Let's check. It may not be. I don't think I saw them. But I know if you look at any of the forums on the internet. Oh, yeah. Engineer was Lowell Frank. And tape editor was Lee Hersberg. Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah. So, from a sound engineering perspective, it, it really is a marvel. Um, something, too, about this album I love is let's not forget the year. This is 1966. So, this is the same year as Revolver. <laughs> for example, all right. This was the year when the Beach Boys were taking over America. This is the hippie movement was in full swing. Um, you know, this was not the swing era, right? This is not at all the, the big band era. This is very much an album kind of looking back to the 40s, right? And a bit of the 50s, maybe. Um, and, you know, we think of Frank Sinatra always being the 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 big like current pop culture icon that all the kids were listening to which is always on the radio and stuff and i i've i just don't think that's that doesn't hold up to scrutiny actually i don't think that was really the case he, he was popular but i do think he was popular then the same way tony bennett has been popular now in the past few few decades hmm. and tony bennett sings you know come fly with me and stuff like that it's 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 not you know yeah i mean he's popular but he's not mainstream if that's the right word he's very much uh, almost nostalgic and enjoying that nostalgic perspective and kind of transporting you to a time an era era bygone um so and this concert was no exception i think yeah the count basie band yeah they're a phenomenal big band but this was kind of past yeah when it was the big bands of america were what you heard on the radio back in the 30s and um, and maybe that was always the appeal of Sinatra. Maybe that's always, always what people loved about him, even back in back when he was fifty, back in his in his heyday. Maybe that's part part of the part of that Sinatra charm. I don't know. The layers only get added on with, with the nostalgia because, you know, here we are um, listening to to a record of, <laughs> right. um, of of a of a Sinatra song of, of a Sinatra concert that that is all is already kind of. Uh, a nostalgia trip, you know, in, in the best way. Yeah. Um, yeah, at a hotel that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the whole thing adds a, is the whole thing is a very, um, there's a sort of surreal charm to it. So some of the liner notes also do talk about, as I briefly mentioned a few minutes ago, about um, Sinatra's concert preparation sort of ritual and how he would nurse his voice and take care of it and all that. And I... It's easy to think of any artist as just being kind of a genius and just being that an artist. But when really, 
a great there's this great masterclass. I'm not sure if it's online anymore. I think parts of it are on YouTube, but it's a masterclass. I think at USC Film School with Spielberg, so Steven Spielberg and John Williams together, and they're doing like a Q and A with all film students and film composers and stuff, uh, aspiring film composers. And one of the things that that Steven Spielberg says that really stuck with me, and I've always kind of thought was really well put, is he said, "Don't think of yourself as an artist. Think of yourself as a craftsman." Right. Let everyone else think of you as an artist, but think of yourself as a craftsman and learn your craft. Yeah. And Frank Sinatra was no exception. Right. Um, I mean, Frank Sinatra was like he was uh, like when he would rehearse with his um, with his pianist, Bill Miller, when he was arranging. I mean, he was very intentional. There's very little that was accidental. Even all these like comedic lines and stuff he rehearsed those he could just kind of pull them out almost like how oscar wilde would famously rehearse all of his jokes before before going to a big dinner party and casually pull them out as as it was spur of the moment sinatra was kind of the same way even he always drank you know jack daniels and two rocks on stage it was usually apple juice so i was gonna say the exact same i was gonna bring up that yeah yeah Um, um but again you know he 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 knew his craft and he mastered that craft and this concert is just someone at the height of the craft. That's what I think just really comes through. Yeah, yeah it's it's there are a few examples that I can think of that are better than than this in terms of um, how how hard does someone have to to work to to appear to be totally um, totally careless and carefree is maybe a better word than careless. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, yeah, like we said, he just comes on as zip zip. You know, he's, he's landing all these jokes, the crowd's going wild, he's killing these songs. Um, and it sounds like it's just Sinatra being Sinatra. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, but, but really everything is, everything is really carefully practiced and planned out. And, um, you know, he's, he's, it's, he's executing this thing very well. It's not, yeah. you know, he's, he's, he's not finding himself having done all this, looking back and like, oh, that went well. You know, he's hitting, he's like, he's hitting all these marks, you know. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. And, and no. yeah, I was I was yeah. gonna say that exact thing about about um, the the apple cider or whatever the apple juice. Yeah, apple, apple cider juice. That, yeah, that, it's all part of the uh, act. I think you know, yeah, part it's of the all show. part of the act. And and I think all of the Rat Pack did that. You know, they, they would mm-hmm. they would get on stage and they would they would they had a perfectly calibrated stumble and a perfectly calibrated kind of um, slur of the words, especially at Dean Martin. You know, mm-hmm. um, sure, he, yeah. he he really practiced acting just a little bit drunk, but. As far as I knew, they, they didn't really drink on stage. Yeah. They drank a lot after. <laughs> but, but they didn't. No, no one's saying they didn't. But on stage, you know, that was a persona. And, right, um, exactly. I, I, I find that very interesting. It's like uh, yeah. another example is, is Louis Armstrong. Sure. Oh, you know, yeah. You know, he's absolutely. someone that people just look at and, and they think it's Louis being Louis. And it's, it is. But what Louis is, is, is a very practiced persona, as all artists are. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, I mean, so all these things we've kind of been talking about with this album and makes it great. I mean, this isn't just limited to Sinatra or jazz or big band or Count Basie or something. It's uh, this medium of performance is itself an art form, as I think we all kind of learn. Um, and some people say, yeah, you master performing just by doing it a lot, which is there's part of that that's true. But like the art of the performance and honing those skills that that, you know, um, that are involved with that. Uh, Frank was one of the best 
who had ever done it. And this album, yeah, this album just puts that front and center and you can listen to it and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but before we get off of it, um, yeah. it, it just, let's just take a moment to, to appreciate how cool it looks, right? Yeah. Um, oh, it, it looks awesome. It looks, it yeah, looks really awesome. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where the, um, f- finding, finding the little, you know, whatever it is like two by two icon or maybe even like one by one icon on, yeah. on Spotify. It doesn't do yeah. it justice. Oh we, no, we, not, do, at do you wanna, not at all. Do, do you want to describe the, well, first of all, in the inside flaps, there are a bunch of cool pictures and yeah, all the line notes and everything. Yeah his dressing room, you know, in, in, a, in a sharp tux. Sorry, I should talk into the mic, I guess. Yeah. But, um, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a, yeah. Oh, and I see Sinatra's glasses. I always notice that his glasses like on the, on the table. I never saw more glasses. So that's kind of, kind of interesting. I think he took them um, off when he, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess so. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's the iconic kind of like picture of, of Sinatra uh, yeah. just in that, that, um, that like triangle expanding spotlight shape and hit him, you know, holding the mic and, and the cord and stuff. And yeah, I I'll mean, take some pictures and and um and we can put them in the we can put them in the show notes. Like some pictures yeah. of the of the actual albums that we Yeah, and we'll about. I mean, of course we'll link to all of, we'll link to the albums itself and everything on yeah. the, in, in in the in the show notes. One of the other things too, I briefly mentioned it as well, and that is yeah, just how good the Count Basie band sounds. I mean, when you think of like in the pocket as jazz people talk, just like all and what is it, like a twenty twenty one member band or so, just everyone is just so in sync and just grooving so hard. Like that becomes so clear in the in the opening track, "Come Fly with Me," when it's the it's called in jazz the shout chorus, when it's when the vocalist drops out and the band just kind of takes over the melody. You can hear the brass and the saxophones and everyone just so just slightly right the way you're supposed to do it in jazz where where the the drummer is playing perfectly in time the bass is pushing time a tiny bit but then the rest of the band is just sitting back on the beat just ever so slightly so it's not perfectly on every downbeat it's just one thirty second of a beat behind it's it's such a delicate art but when you hear it you hear it it's not perfectly lined up but it's just just relaxed relaxed but without without dragging of course so it's a it's a very fine very fine line come on fly with me we'll fly we'll fly we'll fly Basie Man and like the Duke Ellington band, all these the great big bands, um, uh, Benny Goodman's band, Glenn Miller, they, they kind of perfected this art, and that's the way you have to kind of interpret that music when you play it now too. You kind of drags ever so slightly, and yeah, all this stuff comes becomes apparent right 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 off the bat when uh, when you hear the opening number and and yeah, they're swinging, they yeah. are swinging. <laughs> Yeah, it's so it's so tight. You you forget you forget how many people are on stage at any given moment. Because yeah, it, just, yeah. it seems like it's just a few people, but obviously it can't be. You're hearing more right. sa- you're hearing more sounds than you know two or three people can make. But it just it's it's one sort of organic um, entity. It seems like yeah. 
and it's just it's so fun so yeah yeah no it, it's it's just a hilarious and fun album to listen to and stuff so highly recommend it even if you can't get it on vinyl no worries listen to it on spotify or it's all on youtube too it's great it's great stuff and shake is, yourself is there, martini. Is there like a video is there a video of this no I, i'm pretty sure there is oh, okay i think okay. i think yeah. i've looked for it yeah i think um yeah um not sure if that was intentional or not um hmm. i don't know wait i'm sorry did, did i hear you say that you should shake yourself a martini yeah i did say that yeah no 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 you should stir yourself a martini folks no, it gets a little more watered down, but I just like it so ice cold sweeter. So I'll, I'll, I'll take enough, the, the slight dilution for the for the drop in temperature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I sacrifice my ABV for nothing. So I went. I went kind of old school. Back to the 60s with a Sinatra album. Schreeder, what is your album choice? Um, well, actually, episode. <laughs> I, I'm in the 60s as well. Um, let me see. Love it, love it. I think it's 65, yeah, I just checked. So I'm in 1965, um, so a little bit more old school than you. But my choice is, um, <laughs> yeah. is Bob Dylan's 1965 oh. record, Bringing It All Back Home. Um, got it, got it. So first of all, do you know this? Right, do, do, you, do you know this record? Are you familiar with Bob Dylan? I'm not going to lie. I'm like barely familiar with Bob Dylan. Yeah. So, yeah, just barely. I do love the 60s, though. And he yeah. was, you know. He's fairly instrumental in those. Yeah, it's, it's funny that we, it seemed like we went two, two separate ways there where you chose Sinatra at the Sands because you, you knew that I know it. And I chose this partly because mm. I had a hunch that you wouldn't. So, we, so I could um, maybe... You know, it's not often that I get to talk about music that that you don't know that much about because you're, you're more you're more <laughs> omnivorous than I. So, um, so I took the chance well, to. Well, I mean, who knows? But, um, but okay, okay. So, um, yeah. So this is um, Bob Dylan's record, um, "Bringing It All Back Home," which which I believe is the record that he made, um, right after another side of Bob Dylan. Um, it's it was in the period when he started transitioning from being. Um, kind of like a folk slash protest singer. Um, I think he started he started kind of rejecting that and and trying to just sort of be more like doing his own thing, you know. Um, so th- he started doing that with another side of Bob Dylan, and and this is sort of the continuation of that. Um, some of these songs are like you know they uh, are, are electric, which I think the folk people didn't really like, and uh, and and hmm. you know most of these songs aren't really political or protesty they're just kind of um surreal and kind of um you know they're just they're just songs like regular songs so so um yeah if if if, if i could just hop in real quick yeah um no it's just funny like when i think of bob dylan first thing i think of is are the first thing i think first things i think of are all the vietnam war documentaries i've watched yeah <laughs> Yeah, like the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary, all glorious 19 hours of it. No, there's a whole, you know, anti-war movement. It's always Bob Dylan songs on the background of those segments. So yeah, exactly. So g- going along with the theme, I mean, the re- the reason I chose this is because, um, first of all, I really like the music. Like this has some of my favorite Bob Dylan songs, and it, it just works. Okay. It works really well from beginning to end because again, you can't really um, you can't really skip very easily in a record. 
um, as like like mm-hmm. you can in streaming. So it's it's important for an an album, especially like a, a pop or rock album, um, where where there are many songs for for all the songs to be of a decent quality, you know, um, which I I think is pretty rare. So you know, this has that going for it. And then um, the the back of it has has um, liner notes that that are written by Bob Dylan. Um, and and it's it's kind of a it's kind of like a prose poem, um, and and that's something that I think is is really cool. And I wish I wish more albums had had sort of liner notes that added to the to the um, to the artistry of the of the actual music. You know, um, liner mm. notes tend to be at oh, their right. at their worst they tend to be sort of prosaic descriptions of what was happening, and then more interesting is something like Sinatra at the Sands where it's like a journalist kind of talking about um, what was going on, you know, with like pictures yeah. and stuff. Um, but but rarely is it um, an artist sort of just doing another thing that's that's sort of only tangentially related to the actual music, you know. Um, right. So right. so I love that. And then similar to Sinatra at the Sands, I don't know if you can see it, but it has, it has these cool pictures. Oh, yeah. Um, in, in the back, there's, there's one where Bob Dylan is there with with um, Joan Baez, it looks like um, mm, some okay. some other some other cool cool pictures. And again, this is, this is something that really doesn't work with um, streaming. And you can see where the where the prose poem is here. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Um, and then the, the 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 cover is is really really cool. I think. Um, oh, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I, th- I think it it um, I think the the person who took the took this picture may may have won some some kind of award for for cover art hmm, um, okay. and and, there, and there, it's it's there's so many interesting things here like there, there's there's bob dylan and he's he's got a he's got a cat in his in his arm which is apparently his cat and um the cat the cat's name hmm. is rolling stone um <laughs> which is funny. and then um there's there's a there's a woman in the back who is uh her name is sally grossman she's the she's the the wife of um of uh, his manager, um, Albert Grossman, but then I don't know if you can see all these things that are kind of lying around, um, and those are all other those are all yeah. other records. Um, like one of the ones in the back is is another oh. side of Bob Dylan, which is his previous record. Um, oh, funny! And okay. then there's some other ones that sort of seem to be um, interesting records that maybe he was influenced by, or he just was listening to or liked at the time. Um, I know one of them is like a Ravi Shankar hmm. record. Oh, um, wow. yeah. And uh, here, what what else is what other records are there? Um, there there's, there's a Ravi Shankar one. There's one with um, uh, a folk blues guy whose name is Eric Von Schmidt. Um, and uh, there's one of Robert Johnson, uh, the, the king of the Delta blues um, mm-hmm. singers, you know. Uh, so, so I just, oh, it's, it's like a, it's just a, again, it's, I, I've listened to this on Spotify before getting this record. And, um, you know, it's one of those things on that tiny icon. You, you don't really look at it and notice all these details, but then you get... No, the the artwork of the record is so important, and and it when it's when it's blown yeah. up to, to the LP size, um, it just adds a whole other thing, you know, along with the the, the poetry in the back and and this, cool, um, artwork up front that just has so many layers to it that you can just sort of keep keep looking at and, and noticing cool things, um, it just it. it's, um, yeah, it's it's just a, it's it's a record that I think exemplifies, um, you know, why why a record is, is in, some, in some cases, a record is cooler than just sort of listening to something on streaming. Um, yeah. And 
Yeah. And I, I think um, I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure on one side it's all electric and on, on, on the other it's, it's all acoustic. So there, there's that, there's, that's another thing where um, hmm. it's to do with the, 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 the side flipping. You know, it, it, it's something that you don't notice when you're just listening on, on streaming. It goes to what you're saying about um, listening to it in the, in the medium that it was intended. You know, where right. he, he thought of this um, right. split between side one and side two as, as being um, electric and acoustic. And, and it works that way. And, and on streaming, you just you just listen to the whole thing and you don't notice that. Right, right. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Um, so what draws you in general to the music of Bob Dylan? Um, that's a good question. I think, I mean, number one, it's the, it's the, the poetry of it. I, I, I find him, I find him mm-hmm. to be um, an interesting um, writer of, of, of poetry. Um, he, it's Got it's it. really it's really fun. Like a lot of these songs are really funny. Um, you know, it's, it, I think it's it's easy it's easy to to sort of think of Bob Dylan as kind of like a pretentious guy, uh, or like hmm. you know like a sort of pretentious artiste, um, or like a protest kind of um, a, like activist right, singer. But right. I think you know that was that was like a, an early phase, um, and then all of the the later stuff with him sort of seeming pretentious. I think he was just trying to do his own thing. And he just was like mobbed by people asking him, you know, what do these lyrics mean? And they really just meant nothing. You know, he, he was just writing these things because he thought they sounded cool. And maybe they have some private meaning, but it's not this um, grand sort of uh, artistic statement. They're, they're just sort of nice little tunes and nice little um, poetries and, and, and songs. Um, and yeah, there are a couple of um, songs. Which, which one is the one? I think Bob Dylan's one fifteenth Dream. Um, it, it's it's a, it's kind of a surreal song. Uh, we can we can maybe put a clip here, um, but the sure, the, the, yeah. the lyrics are um, are surreal and it's just kind of outlining um, this this crazy dream that he that he has. It's not actually a dream. It's just um, it's a surreal experience, like a, a Kafkaesque nightmare. And it starts with an outtake. I was riding on the Mayflower when I thought I spied some. <laughs> Start again. <laughs> Wait a minute, now. <laughs> okay, take two. I was riding on the Mayflower and I thought I spot some land. I yelled for Captain E-Rib. I have you understand. So yeah, I, I think I think he's. Um, not not enough credit is given to to him as just a a sort of non political non non sort of pretentious poet, and um, and um, I, I don't think enough credit is given for for how how funny his songs can be. So that's one thing. Yeah. Got it. Got it. I also yeah, like his voice. I know I know people people I, people hmm. find his voice really um, divisive, and um, like a lot of people probably hate listening to him sing, but. Um, but I, I quite like his like the, the sort of calling derision that's in his voice. You know, he, he really gives um he really gives a sound to to the kind of um the the the, the tiredness and the and the sort of not the hatred, but the kind of um not wanting to deal with the bullshit of the world feeling that, that one has, mm-hmm. you know. Um um yeah.
Disillusioned words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark. Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh colored Christs that glow in the dark. It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred. Yeah, no, no, it's interesting. Yeah, no, when I, yeah, when I, yeah, when I, as I said earlier, when I think of Bob Dylan, yeah, I think of the anti war movement, I think of Steve Jobs, I think of. Oh, did Steve Jobs um, like, like, um, yeah, yeah, he was a big Bob Dylan. It was in one of the. There's a video of Bob Dylan in one of like the old Macintosh com- commercials, I think, um, or it might have been like a picture of him or a video of him in one of the Think Different commercials yeah. back in the days. So, um, no, I always knew it's, uh, Steve Jobs idolized the Beatles and Bob Dylan. That's what he listened to. So yeah, well, it's. I mean, it's interesting that um, it's. I think around this around this time he was he was actually. I, I always thought of the Beatles as being heavily influenced by Dylan. Um, but uh, mm, apparently, okay. around this time, he was also influenced by the Beatles. Um, as as that's usually how, how influences work. To be fair, I mean, right? Yeah, but you know, it's interesting to to note, like, as he's coming out of the sort of protest folk acoustic phase, and he's going into you know more sort of um, purely musical electric, um, you know, not non political yeah. phase. Um, the the influence of the Beatles is is right here, and I think this is the first record where he's. He's really influenced by them. My love, she speaks like silence Without ideals of violence She doesn't have to say she's faithful Yet she's true like ice, like fire People carry roses And make promises by the hours I love she laughs like the flowers. Valentine's can't buy her. And I think that they they both I think the Beatles and Bob Dylan have in common um, with Steve Jobs and so many other great people like um, like John Williams too. You were saying earlier is that mm-hmm. if you ask them um, what their favorite record is, they would say the next one. Like what their what their favorite mm-hmm. thing that they've done is. It's it's always the next thing. And I think that's that's part of why um, I think Bob Dylan gets. Uh, or at least got so much hate, right? Like he started off doing doing one thing, and then and then he moved on to another mm. thing, and then all the people that thought of him as a protest guy hated him because he stopped doing protest stuff, and then he went electric, and then all the folk people hated him because they, he ditched the folk thing, and then and then he he ditched that, and then you know he went on to to other things. He's always like looking. He as an artist is always um, you know a couple steps ahead of everyone who's appreciating him. So um, I, I think that's that's a surefire way to to sort of uh, trail some hate behind you. But I, I think you know, like the the Beatles did that as well, right? And I, you know, there was there was a, a there was a lot of people who who thought they went crazy with with Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, and this was '65, yeah. right? This album came out. So is that the same year as Rubber Soul? I want to say. I think so. Yeah, I think it was like that, and I think that's the first album of the Beatles where they start playing with not rock and roll instruments, yeah. right? There's a sitar in Norwegian wood. Yeah, right? yeah. I think that's on yeah, exactly. Soul, right? And and then um, that's when they also started yeah. going into like you know Mixolydian and yeah, exactly, and like yeah, yeah, like different musical modes and uh, really getting fancy with music theory and yeah, and getting experimental at the same time in the studio with. The, Electronic instruments. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting because um, um, you know there, there's a story of, of how um, Bob Dylan introduced the Beatles to to pot. 
So I kind of I kind of took that <laughs> and just sort of always thought that um, the influence went that way. But it's interesting that it is right around the same time that they both started getting experimental. And I think uh, right around that same time is also bo- when both of their sort of earlier fan bases started uh, revolting a little bit. You know. Yeah, interesting. It, yeah, and I know the yeah I think it was the year after in '66 when the, when the Sinatra album came out. I think that was the year John Lennon called them more popular than Jesus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, to um, be fair, I, they kind of were. Um. They were, yeah. And and if they weren't, if they weren't at the time of saying that, his saying that certainly made them more popular than Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, and everyone was burning. Beatles records, but they had, but they had, but they had to buy them to burn them. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, but um, um, yeah, I, I, so another thing that's that's a kind of parallel between between Dylan and this phase, and which I I think this phase is my favorite phase of Dylan. Um, I don't, I don't think, I think most people kind of think that. Um, but one thing that's similar to the Beatles is that um, they had this phase where for a couple years they were so extraordinarily prolific and like creative and and um the work that came out of that period spanned a longer time than than it actually took to make that work you know um like like the Mm. revolver sessions you know that was that was split up into revolver and sergeant pepper and maybe even some of rubber soul but it was like a very intense creative period you know they did all these crazy things and then that just lasted for three years of records um Right, but right. but in reality, the creation of it was this intense contact with some kind of genius that was that was in the air, and I think it was a similar thing with this, where um, he has you know these records after this. I think he has um, Blonde on Blonde and Highway 61 revisited, and before this, Another Side, and these are all. It's kind of a similar kind of progression as Robert Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper, um, and and yet I think he was working on a lot of these songs at the same time and he was he was working in this sort of frenzy of um just sort of waking up and then like smoking cigarettes drinking wine writing these songs falling asleep waking up you know repeat and i think it was a similar thing and um yeah actually the 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 another side of bob dylan the album that came previously he recorded that entire thing in one night um and, and during it, he he, he consumed yeah. And during it, he consumed um, three bottles of of Beaujolais, so he had good taste. In, <laughs> he had good taste in French wine. Um, but, Interesting, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. That's one of the things that I I mean that I kind of love about how recordings were done back then. Most of the Beatles recordings, at least in the when they weren't like experimenting as much in the studio, but at least like their their early recordings, like um, like Help and all that stuff. It was. It was you came in in the morning, recorded the first side, had lunch, then recorded the B side of the album, and then went home, and and that was the record. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, and then you stamped it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now nowadays, it's like yeah. I mean, it takes half a year for artists to you know tweak and perform. I mean, get exactly how they want and all this, and yeah, yeah. So back in these days, record was. I mean. Records were big business, and it was run like a big business. I could be completely wrong in this, and we ended up cutting this whole thing. But I just kind of wonder, you know, Bob Dylan being portrayed as the hippie, anti-capitalist, you know, feel-good guy. Do you know was that a persona he helped, he he intended to construct, or he didn't care that people constructed it for him, or was he against that? Kind of curious. Yeah, I I think 
I think people constructed it for him and he didn't care for it. Because as we were talking about the Sinatra album, like the, the brand of Sinatra was carefully constructed by Frank Sinatra, right? Yeah. So I get the feeling with Bob Dylan, um, he was rebellious even against his own like, like status and his own icon. Well, that's part of what draws me to him. I, I mean, I could be wrong about all of this because I'm not a Dylan scholar, right? So part of what draws me to him is, is um, he seems eternally conflicted about his own image and his own artistry. He doesn't, it's not, it's not like Sinatra at all where he has this like brand and it's, um, it's really thought through and, and he just, he goes in and he hits all the marks and that's that, you know. Yeah. He seems like he never really, um, he's always, he's always trying to, to um, change it up and, and try to like sort of look to the next kind of persona and the next kind of um, way to be an artist and and he never really and i think he also has the problem that um sinatra i don't think ever had and and people like sinatra don't don't really have because i don't think anyone tried to co-opt sinatra for their cause you know sinatra was he did he was able to sort of craft a brand that was just sinatra right whereas bob dylan he just he came on the scene doing one thing and then all the hippies and anti-war people kind of just latched onto him because of like a yeah. year of his actual work, right? And then he just moved on to try to do the next thing, and they wouldn't let him go. And then again and again. So I, I don't know. It's 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 a complicated thing, you know. I can't imagine being right. being that famous. Like, I, I I firmly believe that no one, no one should be that famous, because it yeah. just becomes impossible to to be uh, a person. And you know, I've seen these documentaries with Bob Dylan where he just is he just is in a room and. Um, especially when he's young, like he seems to be lashing out at, at these people who are asking him all these questions. But um, at least me, I have a lot of cognitive empathy for that position because I hate having to explain myself. And, you know, here he is like a 25-year-old kid and, you know, an entire generation of anti-war people have decided that he is their messiah. Yeah, you know, and the right. next year he just wants to do like an, an album of, you know, love songs or something. He, it wasn't actually love songs, but he just wanted to do just something different. And they're like, no, 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 you're a man, you know, and you see the look in their eyes. They have this like fervor and, and he just is like, Hey man, like this is not, this is not my scene. So I don't know if that answered your question, but it seemed, it seems like he, no, it does, he, kind yeah. of, he never really figured it out until later, you know? Yeah, no, it's almost like the irony. It'd be funny if you said, I'm making this album, but please nobody buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and just see <laughs> Interesting choice, yeah. I was not expecting you to choose that one. I was trying to go um, out of left field. I think so. I, I knew you had a Dylan album or two. Um, yeah, definitely a different um, flavor. Um, uh, definitely, I mean, both of our choices are a bit different from our usual classical programming, which we just want to tell people, you know, even if you love classical music, it's okay to not always listen to classical music. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was really struggling because, um, unfortunately, classical music never as far as i know never really embraced um the more like extra musical creative aspects of of records there aren't that many like i don't think i have a single classical music record that has truly interesting artwork or truly interesting liner notes let alone poetry you know like poetry that's unrelated to the to the thing that as liner notes or um anything like that it seems like yeah i'm trying to think 
seems like at least the, the records I was I was going through my record collection trying to trying to find stuff and um, I wasn't explicitly trying to go non-classical but mm-hmm. I just was sure. I, no, same, yeah, same. I just was kind of yeah. noticing that like not that there I don't have any good classical records I have some wonderful classical records but you know it's like a picture of the conductor up front and then on the yeah. back it says like what tracks there are and how long each one is and then a little biography of the composer <laughs> you know and I'm like, there's nothing to talk about here. 